Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 7. Psalm 7 in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. We're looking at the seventh Psalm this morning. We're going to think about praying for judgment in your pain. Praying for judgment in your pain. Psalm 7. I'll read the text. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, which is not too different from your own. And after that, we'll pray. A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Yahweh, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Or they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Rise up, Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. Yahweh judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. I will thank the Lord Yahweh for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of Yahweh, the Lord Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd open our eyes to the wonderful and awful and terrible and terrifying themes of this text. Lord, this is out of step with the way we think in our modern day. And yet it is food for our souls. So Father, draw near to me, draw near to us in this time as we watch this together as a church family on Zoom or online and for those who watch later, we pray, Lord, that through the preaching of the word of Christ, that Christ would be exalted, that our hearts would be warmed and convicted and strengthened and be brought to repentance and faith. And we pray that we would walk in your ways, that we would pray in your ways, according to the psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a Psalm of David. It says here in the, uh, in the um, superscription here, 
a Shigayon of David. We don't know what a Shigayon is. David is the king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel after King Saul. From the, uh, David is from the tribe of Judah. And he was given a Davidic promise or covenant that his seed would always reign on the throne from God in 2 Samuel 7. So this is a, a song of David, which he sang to the Lord, to Yahweh, and that's God's covenant name, to Yahweh, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't know who Cush is, the Benjaminite. We know Saul was a Benjaminite, and he had a lot of Benjaminites around him, even as he pursued and persecuted David. We know Shimei was another person who, um, who persecuted David when he was running from Absalom. But we don't know who Cush, the Benjaminite, is. But I, I think it would be helpful, and I think if you're reading through the Psalms altogether, they're taken as a unit here. And if you go to Psalm 3, it says a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now that's Psalm 3, not Psalm 7. But if you're just carrying that idea through with the similar th- themes from Psalm 3 through Psalm 7, I think it would be helpful for you to keep this story in mind when David's son Absalom wanted to kill his dad. He turned the whole country, convinced the whole country, the whole nation to back him instead of David. And then he pursued his dad to kill him so that he could take the throne. That's a double heartbreak. Your nation turning against you and wanting to kill you with a very live and clear and present threat on your life. And then your own son, your own flesh and blood betraying you. That had to be heartbreaking. And and when David fled from his son Absalom, it says in 2 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 8, as David is fleeing barefoot, leaving his palace, leaving Jerusalem, going down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives to flee to the east of Jerusalem, one of the Benjaminites named Shimei, we don't know if this is Cush, but we're just getting this to get an accusation of, of David here. It says this, He threw stones at David and at all his royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed! You wicked man! The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king. And the Lord has has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you are a man of bloodshed. You're guilty of blood. You're guilty of murder. That's quite an accusation, to accuse someone, the king, of murder. That's why you're the king on the throne. That's why you took the, the, the kingship from Saul, because you are a man of bloodshed, of guilt. You're a murderer, and that's why you're getting this punishment. Now, this is a false accusation. David was a sinner, but this was a false accusation. And it, it's fitting for us to take this um, to think about slander. David was, was also slandered by Saul when he was running from King Saul before he became king officially. Uh, David was told to be an enemy of Saul, that he wanted to kill Saul and that he was betraying Saul when David was Saul's most loyal soldier, most loyal subject, most loyal general. David wanted to honor God even though he was falsely accused and slandered as others sought to kill him. Have you ever been slandered before? Have you ever been lied about? Attacked? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Sometimes words, oftentimes words hurt more than sticks and stones. It cuts to the heart. It messes with your mental health, your peace. It causes anxiety and fear and feelings of 
Guilt, false guilt, true guilt, words hurt. And slanderous words, lies about you, gossip about you, hurts. It hurt David. He's getting a threat from the outside, as well as these words that are not only from the outside, but coming into his ear, his mind, his heart, doing damage internally. Christian, we will suffer attack. Threats, being slandered and lied about as we righteously honor God and live with gospel intentionality towards our neighbors and the nations. Jesus warned us of this in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. So how do we not lash out at others when we're internally, when we're angry and bitter and resentful and hurt, when we're deeply wounded on the inside because someone lies about you and slanders you when you live with gospel intentionality How do we not lash out back in sinful anger? When someone deeply sins against you with cutting words, as you try to love people with gospel intentionality and with integrity, how do you respond? David helps us channel pain here without becoming sinfully angry or apathetic. You could be apathetic on the one side and passively resigned. Oh, well, people are going to talk what they're going to say. I don't care. Passive apathy. Or you could become sinfully angry and lash out back at them. And God wants you to do neither of those. He doesn't want you to be passively apathetic and indifferent. He doesn't want you to be sinfully angry and get personal vengeance. So what's the main goal here of Psalm 7? The main goal here is in your suffering, pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God. Pray for judgment here in your suffering. Pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God. And the main point here is to pray for judgment. Now, we could outline this with the four prayers of this psalm in verses 1 and 2. We're not going to do this outline, but in verses 1 and 2, there's a a prayer for salvation, deliverance. In verses 3 through 5, there's a prayer for impartiality. impartiality. In verses 6 through 16, there's a prayer for judgment. And in verse 17, there's a prayer of thanksgiving. So you can pray for salvation, pray for impartiality, pray for judgment, and pray for thanksgiving. But I decided to, because 6 through 16 is such a big chunk and the main chunk of praying for judgment, I would have like so many subpoints under that. I decided instead of doing that to have seven points to outline this main goal. So if the main goal is to pray for judgment in a godly way, here are seven ways to pray that way or Pray for judgment according to seven ways, okay? Pray for judgment. I'll just give you an overview and then we'll go through it. Pray for judgment according to God's strength, verses one and two. Pray for judgment according to God's God-centeredness. That's verses three through five. According to God's ordinances, verses six and seven. According to God's righteousness, verses eight through 11. According to God's demand, verses 12 through 14. According to God's insight, verses uh, 13 or what verses 14 through 16, sorry, 12 and 13, and then 14 through 16. And then, uh, according to God's goodness, verse 17. All right. So pray for judgment, according to God's strength, God's centeredness, ordinances, righteousness, demand, insight, and goodness. I'll, I'll repeat them as we go along. So you won't get lost. Number one, pray for judgment, pray for judgment, according to God's strength. Look at verses one and two. Verse one says, Lord God, I seek refuge in you. I find safety, refuge. You know that safe place where no one can get at you? God is, 
David's refuge. I seek refuge in you. You're my safe place, my safe space. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Notice he addresses God by his covenant name, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will keep his promise to Abraham to bless the nations. He seeks refuge in God. In Psalm 511, he sought refuge in God. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. In Psalm 2, verse 12, in Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, pay homage to the Son, or at the very end of verse 12, it says, all who take refuge in the Son are happy or are blessed. So he prays for salvation. He prays for safety, for deliverance from the enemies who are pursuing him. Now, when David was being pursued by his son Absalom, you're scared. You're sleeping out in the cold. You're on the run. You have an army chasing you to kill you. You pray for God to God for safety. Now, notice here again in verse two, he he sees um, he fears danger. The blessed man prays for salvation, but the blessed man here in verse two. He, um, he fears danger. They will tear me apart like a lion, ripping, uh, he says here, they will tear me like a lion. Or they, if you don't save me, God, they will tear me like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Now, this is scary. I mean, if you're walking around and there's wild lions out, we don't face those too much. So it may be harder for us to fear a roaming lion in Southeast Los Angeles in these days. But we're in LA, so imagine this, you're at the beach, okay, you're at Santa Monica Beach or one of the Orange County beaches that are open now, and you're swimming in the ocean, maybe surfing or bodyboarding, you're there in the ocean, and then you realize that there are great white sharks in the water, and you're not too close to the shore. Imagine that. You see two or three great white sharks as you are there bodyboarding deeper out, way further out in the Pacific Ocean. What would you do? I mean, you're going to outswim them. You'd pray for safety. You'd cry out to God who is stronger than 10 billion sharks. That's what you do. It's, it's scary. What else can you do but pray to God? That's what David's doing. If you don't save me, God, they're going to tear me like a lion. They're going to eat me like sharks. What chance do I have? Now, this could be, again, these, for David, it's an army chasing him. But we have enemies from the outside. You got enemies inside the church. You got enemies outside the church. You got people who are enemies, but then you also have nature that can oppose us, even coronaviruses and cancerous cells that multiply to kill. It could be a deadly disease that is killing you. What do we do? Here, the blessed man prays to God according to God's strength. He prays for safety, for deliverance. You cry out to God, the omnipotent God, for safety, and you pray for God to deliver you from the trial. And if he can't, or not if he can't, God can. If God won't deliver you from the trial, you pray like Jesus that God would deliver you through the trial, that he would keep you and hold you fast, that you would trust in him all the way to the end, even past death into the very presence of God. So pray to God who is infinitely strong and able to deliver you from danger and from death and to deliver you through danger and through death. If you're not a Christian, there are dangers in this world and a greater danger above and beyond this world that we'll speak about as we continue to study this psalm. So the main goal is in your suffering, pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God. Pray for judgment according to God's strength. Number two, pray for, pray for judgment according to God's God-centeredness, verses three through five. 
according to God's God-centeredness. And what I mean by this is God's impartial justice. Notice in verses 3 and 4, David swears that he didn't do the evil that is accused of him. Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is, if, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, if I've done this, I'm guilty. And I'm not going to deny it. If I really did this, if I'm really guilty, if I really did murder and cause bloodshed to take the kingship, or for King Saul, if I, when King Saul's accusing David before he became king of trying to betray the king and kill the king, if I really want to kill the king, then let me, verse 5, may an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. God, it's not about me. It's not about what's best for me, per se, as if I'm the center of the universe. You're the center of the universe. So if I'm guilty and they're charging me with this guilt, then may my enemies crush me. May they pursue me. May they overtake me. May they trample me to the ground. May they leave my honor in the dust. If I'm guilty, may this threefold judgment overtake me. Notice here, David holds fast to his integrity and honesty. He does not ask God to unrighteously favor him. David doesn't ask God to become man-centered or David-centered and compromise God's character and God's righteousness. God, you're the center of the universe. To, to you be all glory, honor, and praise. Not to me. And so if I have violated you and violated these people, and if I'm guilty, then may I be judged for it. This is perhaps what Paul means. I think so. When, uh, by the trustworthy saying of 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him, speaking of Jesus. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful to himself. If you deny him, he will deny you. If David denies Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then God will deny him. God is faithful to his God-centeredness. And David knows that, and he says, if I am not I, I, I believe in God's impartial justice. It's not about me and man-centeredness or David-centeredness or self-centeredness. It's about God's God-centeredness. So God, if I'm guilty, may you remain central and may I be judged. Church family, as a church, even as individuals, be willing to be held accountable for the glory of God. Embrace God's God-centeredness to the death of our sinful, selfish agendas to the death of our defending ourselves, even when we're wrong. Rather, let's embrace God's impartial justice, God's God-centeredness. So pray for judgment of others in your suffering. Pray for the judgment of others according, in a godly way according to God's God-centeredness. That was number two. According to God's strength, that's number one. Let's go to number three. Pray for judgment according to God's ordinances. God's ordinances. And I say ordinance because in verse Six, it says you have ordained judgment. God has ordered or commanded or decreed judgment. So we pray for judgment according to God's ordinances. Now there are two ways the prayer for judgment, and this is the main prayer, verses six through 16. Um, in this prayer, there are two ways here in verses six and seven that the prayer for judgment is expressed. It's, an, it's a, a prayer for God to act for David and a prayer that God would take his seat, his judgment seat. So the blessed man, and David is the blessed man here, the Psalm 1 blessed man, the blessed man prays to, for God to act. 
The blessed woman prays for God to act. Look at verse 6. Rise up, Yahweh, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. God, attack them. Get up. Wake up for me. For me, the blessed person. For me, King David. For me, your servant, your child. Rise up and attack my enemies. He asks God to rise in anger. Now remember in Psalm 6, one, just one Psalm previous, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. But in Psalm 2, 5, talking about God's enemies, he speaks to his enemies in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath. God judges his enemies with wrathful, condemning anger. And David says, God, don't, don't judge me according to your anger. And here he's saying, God, rise up in your wrathful anger and get them. Get those enemies. Awake for me. Now he says, he asks God to wake for him. So this is not a David-centered prayer, but it is a David-oriented prayer. It's a David-oriented prayer. Awake for me. These are my adversaries. What does that mean? Why is it a David-oriented prayer? This is a David-oriented prayer, which is to say that it is a Messiah-oriented prayer because David is the Mashiach. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the anointed king. And another word for Messiah is Christ. So remember in Psalm 2, look at Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2 verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He, the Lord ridicules them. I'm sorry, verse 2. The, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against Yahweh, his anointed one, his Messiah. God speaks to them as anger. Look at verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And so verse 12 says, pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So here God is commanding the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, all people to take refuge in the sun, to pay homage to the sun or kiss the sun literally, to swear your allegiance and loyalty and commitment to the sun, the anointed king of Israel, the Messiah. So this is a, so the Psalms is a Messiah-oriented Psalter, it's, some, it's a, a Messiah-oriented book. If you're on the Messiah side, you're on Yahweh's side. If you're against the Messiah, the anointed king, the Davidic king, you're against Yahweh, the God of Israel. So it's a Christ-oriented prayer, a Messiah-oriented prayer, which points to the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus is the ultimate Messiah. And so David is saying, God, awake for me and judge my enemies for me. It's oriented around David. Now, can we pray this? Because we're not a Messiah. We're not anointed Davidic kings. We're not even Israelites by blood, most of us. But this is also, I would say, secondarily, as an extension of a David-oriented prayer or a Messiah-oriented prayer, it is also a covenant community-oriented prayer. I think this, well, Psalm 7 is for the covenant community. So as those in the new covenant, we can say, even today, that this teaches us to pray not only a covenant community-oriented prayer, but a new covenant community-oriented prayer, or a church-oriented prayer. Now, why is this church-oriented? God, arise against the enemies of your covenant community. Arise against the enemies of your church. Wow, why? Why can we pray a covenant community-oriented prayer? Because the covenant community, the new covenant community, is united to who? to Jesus Christ. We are the new covenant community because Christ shed his blood. And so when we take the Lord's Supper and we, we drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All those who drink that, they are symbolizing publicly, saying publicly as they commune with the Lord, that we are the covenant community of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And therefore those who attack us, 
attack the Messiah. That's why Genesis 12, 3 says, um, those who bless Abraham's offspring will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. And those who attack Jesus' body, the church, uh, when Saul of Tarsus was attacking the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you attack the church, the people of God, you're attacking the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we can pray these Davidic-oriented prayers, these Messiah-oriented prayers, these Christ-oriented prayers, these Jesus-oriented prayers, indeed, these church-oriented prayers. The blessed man prays for God to act on their behalf. But the blessed man also prays, in verse 7, for the Lord to take his seat. Look at verse 7. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. So here, the prayer is for the Lord to... um, for all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnic people groups to gather in this one great assembly, one great gathering, one great, great congregation for the final judgment. Gather around God the judge and God take your seat. God takes a seat high above, it says in verse seven. Take your seat on high, high over the assembly. You have all the ethnic people groups, all the peoples of the world from every tribe, nation, tongue, and um, people there gathered around God and God sits sits high over all of them in judgment. God takes his high seat. God is not only the Supreme Court judge, he is the president, the executive branch, the legislative branch who makes the laws, the judge who declares which laws are right and wrong. God is all three. God has absolute power as king. He is the executive, legislative, and judicial ruler. Today, This would be, if we pray for this kind of judgment, for the Lord to take a seat, this is praying for the final judgment to come, the great white throne judgment. Listen to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works or according to their works, by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God will gather all people, you, me, everyone from every ethnic people group, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, And we will all individually, one by one, be judged before God according to our works. Some will be thrown into the lake of fire to burn forever under God's wrath with Satan and his demons. And others will be, those whose names are in the book of life, will be on the new earth with God forever. On this new earth, renewed. Now this will be an awful, dreadful, and glorious day. This great white throne judgment. Here David is praying, Lord, take your seat high over the assembly of the peoples. Do you pray for the Lord to take a seat and make everything finally right? Do you pray for the great white throne judgment? You should. I mean, it's coming and God wants us to pray for it. What if, let's just take a, just take a different thought. What if you knew that God was gonna save 70% of your neighbors, but you didn't know when? Would you pray? What would you do? You would Wouldn't you pray for them? 
Wouldn't you long for that final fulfillment of what God said, that he's going to save 70% of your neighbors, and even if he identified which ones? Wouldn't you pray for that? Wouldn't you gospelize them? Wouldn't you bless them? Wouldn't you introduce them to your Christian community? Wouldn't you stop lagging and procrastinating? Wouldn't you move with urgency to try because you know it's going to happen? Wouldn't you pray fervently for their salvation because you know God promised they would be saved? You're praying because you know God said something's going to happen, so you pray according to that because you delight in it and it's God's will? That's what that's the idea here. We know there's a great white throne judgment. We know it's going to be for God's glory and righteousness. And it's going to be good for us. Do we pray for the great white throne judgment? That's what David is praying here. In your suffering, pray for judgment. God, end this. Bring the great white throne judgment and end this. Side note here, our life and our church is to be poured out. We're to sacrifice ourselves for the nations, for the ethnic people groups. The unengaged, there are 3,000 unengaged ethnic people groups, 6,000 unreached ethnic people groups in the world. Here we are in Southeast LA with some, with most, all English speakers, it's a reached people group. But there are unengaged, unreached people groups, and they will be judged. And so we need to sacrifice our lives here in L.A. for the nations. And some of us need to go. That's another sermon. So why does David pray this prayer, though? Look at verse 6. Why does he pray this prayer? Because God has ordained judgment. God has commanded it to happen. It's a decree that's finally going to come in consummated form. Sorry, I got lost for a second here. So the main goal, in your suffering, pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God. Pray for judgment according to God's strength, according to God's God-centeredness, according to God's ordinances of judgment. Fourthly, pray for judgment according to God's righteousness, according to God's righteousness, verses 8 through 11. David prays for vindication here in final judgment. Look at verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. We just spoke about that. But here's his prayer request now in this judgment. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. So he prays for the blessed man, the blessed woman, prays for their own vindication. God will judge the people. So he says, therefore, God, because you're going to judge the people in righteousness... Because you're going to judge in righteousness, vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity. Now, many of you ask this question as good Protestants. What does David mean when he says, God, vindicate me, judge me, vindicate me according to my righteousness? Doesn't Romans 3, 10 through 12 say that there is none righteous? No, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. Aren't we righteous before God based on justification by faith alone in Christ alone and his righteousness, not our own works? I'm as Protestant as they come. I'm a Protestant just like many of you, brothers and sisters, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches about justification. Our church confesses justification is God's gracious and full acquittal of sinners who believe in Christ from all sin through the satisfaction that Christ has made, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but on account of the obedience and satisfaction of Christ. They receive and rest on him and his righteousness by faith alone. That's our church confession. So we don't believe it's by our righteousness, resting on our righteousness, that we are justified, that we're acquitted. 
But David says here, vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity. I mean, look at this quote of, of Romans. Go, go to Psalm 14. Let me take you to a few Psalms. Look at Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. This is a quote right from, uh, Romans is quoting from Psalms. The fool says in his, in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is a Psalm of David. David says there is no one who does good. So why is David saying here, vindicate me according to my righteousness? David, didn't you say that there's no one who does good? That's true. David does say that, and Paul picks up on that in Romans. But in the same Psalm, Psalm 14, David says in verse 6, verses 5 and 6, then they will be filled with dread for God is with those who are what? God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. I thought there's none who does good, David. Not even one. No one seeks God, and yet God is with the righteous. Who's the righteous? Look at Psalm 18, 20 through 24. David doubles down here on his righteousness in Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the clean, cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless toward him and kept myself from iniquity, from my iniquity. So Yahweh repaid me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his omniscient sight. So David says, there's none who does good, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. And yet he says, God repays me according to my righteousness. How do we understand this? Vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity. Psalm 7 verse 8. How do we understand this? Now, some have said that David is re referring to his vindication of the particular charge. So Shimei is saying, David took over the house of Saul and the kingdom by murdering Saul and his people unjustly. That's not even true. David wasn't even in the battle when Saul was killed. That's a false charge. And, God, and David's saying, Lord, vindicate me on my righteousness. You know I didn't do that. Or if it's the charge that Saul, that David wanted to kill King Saul when he was alive, and that's why Saul turned his people against David to kill him and to hunt him down. That's not true. So David could say, God, vindicate me. Like, I, didn't, I don't want to kill Saul. You know that. So vindicate me according to my righteousness. That's true. That in these particular charges, um, David is not guilty. And so some might say, well, according to my righteousness is that very, very narrow, slim point of the particular charge at hand. And that, I think that's true of the text as far as the text goes. And so I want to say yes to that, but this, this psalm and other psalms make it harder to just say yes to that because it's not speaking just about the judgment of, of the Benjaminite in that moment. God, David here is praying for final judgment, right? I mean, he's praying that God would take his assembly before all the nations. In verse 9, he says, let the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. He's talking about final judgment. And in final judgment, we're not just talking about, did David want to kill Saul or not? We're talking about, did he sin at all? So why is David saying here, vindicate me according to my righteousness? And how are we supposed to understand this as faithful new covenant saints? I think it's more likely, David does refer to his own particular thing, his own situation, but I think it's more likely 
that David refers to the fact that he's a forgiven and justified man who has been supernaturally saved by God, circumcised of heart, I mean, to use old covenant terms, to obey God from the heart. In other words, he is, he is by God's grace and by God's transformation, a righteous person. David speaks of the righteous. Go back to Psalm 14, look at verse five. For God is with those who are righteous, right? And it says in verse five, but look at verse four. Contrast that with the evildoers. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. These evildoers, they don't what? They don't call on who? On the Lord. They don't call on Yahweh. Does that bring anything up in your mind? They don't call on Yahweh. But Joel 2.32 in the Old Testament says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, say it, will be what? Will be saved. They'll be saved. Paul picks up on this in Romans 10, 9 9 through 13, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so David says the the evildoers, they don't call on the name of Yahweh, but we do. So here, I think there's salvation here. David is speaking of the fact that he is saved by God. Even in Psalm 32, where David talks about his sin, in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how blessed is the one who's forgiven of their sin, whom God doesn't charge with iniquity, with trespasses. God doesn't charge them as guilty because he forgives their sin. Paul takes that same verse, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, and he says that this example of David being forgiven is an example of someone God credits with righteousness apart from works, because he's forgiven apart from works. Yet in Psalm 32, David admits that he needs forgiveness, verses 1 and 2, which Paul picks up on. But yet um, he calls those who um, trust in Yahweh from Psalm 32, verse 10, he calls them righteous ones in Psalm 32, verse 10. The upright in heart, I'm sorry, in verse 11. The righteous ones, who are the upright in heart? In heart, who are they? They are the ones who trust in Yahweh, Psalm 32, 32, 10. So God forgives us of our sins, not based on our righteousness, but on his grace and his forgiveness. And yet, when you trust in Yahweh, Psalm 32, 10, and you call on Yahweh, Romans, I mean, Psalm 14, verse four, then God forgives you. And then he changes you so that you become a righteous one. You become upright in heart. God changes your heart. So let me put all this together now. David's righteousness, when he says, vindicate me according to my righteousness, it's not just the particular charge of the moment, though it is that. David's righteousness in the broader scheme of final judgment is the right life David lives. Right thoughts, right desires, right passions, right actions because of God's gracious covenant relationship, God's forgiveness and God's Holy Spirit working on him. This righteousness, these right works, is not the basis of his standing. It's not the basis, the foundation, the basis of his standing before God. The final judgment, notice, when I read Revelation 20, it's a judgment of works, of deeds. Even our confession of faith, Article 23, says that it's a, just, it's a judgment of deeds. God will judge us according to our works. And our works will be weighed as either the proof that we truly trusted in Christ, and we are truly righteous on Christ's righteousness in our lives as the basis justified, but that justification will show itself in the transformation of the righteous works that we do if we're truly saved. Or when your works are weighed in the final judgment, your works burn up as not truly um, produced by the grace of God. 
So David is a picture of the Psalm 1 man who avoids the wicked and meditates on scripture and bears fruit and finally prospers. So the judgment in the end is a judgment of works. Vindicate me according to my righteousness, not as the foundation and basis of my righteousness, that's Christ's righteousness, but as the proof that I am in Christ, the proof that I have trusted in you, God, and have been justified by you. So it's the fruit, not the root. And that's what you read in in Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, what does he do? Separating the sheep from the goats, Jesus says, or Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. He says, for, here's why you come. Because you did these things. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous, the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then when he puts the goats to the final judgment in damnation, he says, you did not do these things for me. Notice it's a judgment according to works. Did you love Jesus or did you not? Now, your love for Jesus and his people is not the basis of your righteousness, but it's the proof that you have been justified and declared righteous in God. We also confess this as a church, don't we? We don't only confess justification, we confess transformation. Quote, those who have been regenerated are also transformed by God's word and spirit dwelling in them. This transformation is progressive through the supply of divine strength, which all saints seek to obtain pressing after a heavenly life in fervent obedience to all Christ's commands. That's what Christians do. And that will be weighed in the final judgment. So we pray like David, um, the blessed man prays for vindication according to his righteousness, according to his supernatural spirit-wrought righteousness on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So the blessed man prays not only for that, the blessed man prays for a final decision. Look at verses nine through 11. In verse nine, It says, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. This is the main purpose. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. Establish the righteous. The final judgment of the wicked coming to an end. For David, this means uh, end on this life. Let the wicked come to an end in this life on earth. Kill them. Let them end. But the implication is what happens after death? That their life would be damned in hell for all eternity. Final judgment. For us in Revelation, that's a lake of fire as we... Have, as has been later revealed in the Bible. So God will judge. Now, why can God be so angry at people who are mostly good, some might say? If you're not a Christian, why is God so angry? Why is God so judgmental? I mean, if I say God is judge, do most people think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Why does God have to judge and punish people like he's some primitive, arbitrary, bloodthirsty tyrant and dictator? Christianity seems to be built, Tim Keller writes, around the concept of a condemning, judgmental deity. He kills people in judgment? And then there's the cross? That the murder of one man leads to the forgiveness of others? Why can't God just forgive us? Why does he have to be so angry that he has to put his son on the cross and even damn him and and judge him and let him die for sinners? The God of Christianity seems like a leftover from primitive religions where peevish gods demanded blood in order to assuage their wrath. Now, Tim Keller outlines a brief response here, and I'll, I outline it here for you. 
On the cross, God doesn't demand our blood, but offers his own. All forgiveness of any deep wrong and injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. If someone truly wrongs you, because of, if someone really hurts you, truly deeply hurts you and wrongs you, because of our deep sense of justice, we can't just shrug it off. We sense there's a, there's a debt. And when, when someone hurts us, there's a debt. We either can make, a, make the perpetrator pay, pay down the debt as we feel, and so we can get revenge ourselves, but that makes us, um, that makes us the judge, in which case the evil spreads to us and hardens us because now we're, 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 we're judging ourselves. Or we can forgive the person and say, you know what, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to lash back at you. But forgiving them, that, that's enormously difficult because you have to take the pain and not lash out. You have to absorb the pain yourself. But that's the only way to, to stop evil from hardening us. Now, if we can't forgive others because of our sense of justice, if we can't forgive others without suffering for it by absorbing it ourselves, it's not surprising that God couldn't forgive us without suffering, coming in the person of Christ and dying on the cross. That's why Christ had to die on the cross. Why does God judge? Because God is just. Your sense of justice knows that when someone wrongs a rapist, Someone, you know, I was reading a story from World War II where, where they would take a sword and uh, when they would, you know, capture a city, some of, the, some of the soldiers, and they would take a sword and cut. They would bet on whether it's a boy or girl in the pregnant woman's womb, and they would cut the womb and see whether it was a boy or girl. They just bet. That's terrible. That's wicked. That's evil. And we sense that justice, and God will judge. For us to not care and say, oh, well, whether they did that or whether they, you know, chose whether their favorite color is red or blue, it makes no difference. Whether they choose to do that or bet on the gender of, a, of an unborn baby as they cut a womb open. Same thing. That makes no sense. That's nonsense for those who believe in justice. And we all sense justice if you're a human. So why do we pray for final judgment? Look at verse 9. Why do you pray for final judgment? The one who examines... Thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. He's a righteous God. God examines completely. He knows your thoughts and emotions. The blessed one finds his protection in God. In verse 10, my shield is with God. God saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and God shows his wrath every day. God shows his wrath every day. God is wrathful towards the wicked all day, every day. Is that true? God's wrath is towards the wicked? Some have asked, well, does that mean like God judges the wicked? Like is the coronavirus judgment? In a sense, yes. For those who are not and will not be in Christ, it is a sense of judgment. It is a, it is, uh, the, the tragedies for Christians are a blessing that bring us closer to God. But for those who are apart from God and will remain apart from God for all eternity, it can be a sense of judgment. John 3.36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. And so let us pray for judgment in a godly way so that we eventually thank God in our suffering. So pray for judgment according to God's strength, God's God-centeredness, God's ordinances, and here, according to God's righteousness, his sense of justice. Number five, let's move a little bit quicker. Pray for judgment according to God's demand. Look at verses 12 and 13. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword he has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. If anyone does not what? Verse 12. If anyone doesn't repent, God demands repentance. 
God demands repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe in the kingdom of God, Mark 1.15. In Revelation, um, when God is executing the world with his seals and his trumpets and his bowls, it says in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, in Revelation 16, 9 through 11, that they didn't repent. When God is bringing out judgment on earth before the final judgment, when he is putting out judgment and punishment on the earth to judge the peoples, and he does that today, I believe that that is in function today, they don't repent of their works and give God glory. But God demands repentance. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31 says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, when he outlines repentance, he says that you need to repent actually, not just by your words. You need to repent entirely, not just some of your sins, but all of your sins, or else it's not repentance. You need to repent immediately, because if you're lagging, you're not repenting, you're rebelling. You need to repent internally, not just on the outside actions, but in the heart. And you need to repent perpetually. When you repent, you repent now, and you continue in a state of renewing repentance and resolve to turn from your sins and to turn to and treasure Jesus now and tomorrow and forever. Repent from your sins. If you don't repent, what does verse 12 and 13 say? If anyone doesn't repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will string his bow, his bow and arrow. He'll prepare his deadly weapons. He'll tip the arrow with fire and he'll be ready to fire it. God anticipates attacking. God is not only judge, but he's the warrior king. The warrior king in the ancient times, they were the people who led the armies. They were the, the commander-in-chief of the armies. And, and if you had a strong warrior king, he was going to protect your people so that you and your family were secure from the enemy. A warrior king meant peace for you and safety and security for you. And so God was the warrior king. God is ready for battle against his enemies and against his people's enemies. God is dis- determined and resolved for battle. God is ready to attack. God is eager to attack. God is eager for battle. Now, that might sound a little bit jarring to us, but we need to think about that. That's what it's saying here. If anyone doesn't repent, God is, he's sharpening his sword. He's stringing his bow. He's, he's tipping, he's, he's lighting up the, the, the arrow with fire. He's got it ready. He's got it oiled up and ready for burning so that he could launch a fiery arrow to destroy his enemies and burn them up. God is eager to attack. The way David, now let me tell you a story here about David and his men. David and his men, one time they went out for a battle and then their settlement was attacked by other people. It was raided and they took the women and children, the wives, women, and children of David's men as they were out at another battle. When they came back, they were so distraught. They were crying. I mean, imagine your, your, your wife and children and your church family's wives and children being taken away. The grief that the men felt, they were so angry and so hurt. They wanted to kill David. They wanted to kill David. And so David and his men go hard and pursue um, they follow the trail and they try to find this people who took their wives and kids now when they did that they, they finally got up now imagine they're they're working together they're angry they're grieving they're upset and they they see from a distance within eyesight now the camp of the enemies and they're partying what would that do if you're a soldier you're getting angry, you're getting ready, right? You're, you're sharpening your sword, your, your bow is ready to go, and you are eager to attack. You can't wait to attack to save your wife and children and your friends' wives and children if they're there. And if they're gone, you can't wait to get revenge, righteous, just revenge for what was done to your people being killed. 
They were eager and ready to wage war. And that's what God is here. God is the warrior king. And he is eager and ready to wage war. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 says, Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. Jesus wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing a pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Judgment is coming. God is eager to judge. God calls for repentance. And if, you do not, if they do not repent, God, God demands justice. God will judge. He's eager to judge. Christian, this means that we are to pray imprecatory psalms and prayers in the same spirit of David and the whole Bible. We don't pray these for personal vendettas. We don't pray when someone offends us in an imprecatory psalm of judgment on them. We don't pray for judgment for our neighbors without love for our neighbors and a desire for their salvation. We pray and sacrifice ourselves so that they might repent. But if they don't repent, if they will not repent, we don't pray that God would have mercy and make a special exception for them where they can be saved apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We don't want to belittle the cross of Christ. We don't want to belittle the mercy of God. We don't want to belittle the salvation of God and that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We don't want to dishonor the righteousness of God. We don't want to compromise God's holiness and wrath and justice. We pray for the execution of God's holiness, justice, and wrath for the glory of his name and the magnification of his mercy in repentant sinners who are saved like us. And so if they will not repent, we do pray for judgment. But while we have time, we pray for salvation, but we still pray for judgment conditional on the possibility and the, the, um, the opportunity for them to not repent, to repent or to not repent. So if they don't repent, we do pray for judgment because David prays for judgment and God desires judgment. We pray for their salvation, but we also pray for judgment for those who won't repent. If you're not a Christian listening, let me just plead with you, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus, to die for sinners and rise from the dead. Because we are sinners, God is holy, and we have not repented. We've hardened our hearts to God, and we've rejected God. And God made us, and he's holy. He's righteous. He, has a, he is just. Our sense of justice comes from his justice. And God will judge us for our sins, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our rebellion. But God sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we should have lived without any sin. He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that if you repent and turn from your sins and turn from your own sense of goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone, God will forgive you. God will justify you. He'll declare you righteous. He'll begin to transform you. And he will not judge you. He will not take his sword and his arrow of fire to burn you up under his judgment. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Today, call on the Lord to save you. And if you will not repent because you're not ready to repent, then name your sins. Take out a paper and write down your sins and think about how evil your sins are and pray that God would give you a sense of your sinfulness that you might repent. In your suffering, pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God. That's the main goal. So we pray according to God's strength, God's God-centeredness, God's ordinances, God's righteousness, and God's demand. Sixthly, 
Pray according to God's insight. Pray for judgment according to God's insight. Verses 14 through 16. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on the top of his head. Notice here in verse 14, the wicked are passionate about sin. They're pregnant with evil. They're just waiting to give birth to it. This is the opposite of repentance. They're ready to sin. They're prepared to sin. They already have sin in the oven just waiting to come out. They've already made preparations for sin, and they just can't wait to celebrate the the birth of the sin. Repentance is a decisive break with evil for God. The wicked do not make a decisive break with evil and stupidity of sin. They do not make a decisive break with sin because they're ravished by the beauty and majesty and goodness of God. And you know what? Christians can fall into this trap too, and we must beware. We can be so drunken that we're not sobered up to see that our sin is wicked. Christians don't get comfortable with sin, or you might not be a Christian. Christians repent, and to repent is to repent entirely and decisively. And if we have not repented decisively, we might not have repented at all. We must not dally with our destroyer. We must not make a deal with our destruction. The wicked ultimately hurt themselves in verses 15 through 16. Their evil is self-defeating and self-inflicting. Adam wanted to be God, so he ate the fruit. Did that work out for him? Haman wanted to hang Esther and the Jews, or hang um, Mordecai and the Jews, and he was hung on his own, his own noose. Judas wanted money by betraying Jesus, and he ended up throwing away his money. He didn't get the money or joy. And Satan wanted to destroy Jesus on the cross, and he ended up killing himself, defeating himself. That's what sin does. It's stupid. It's self-defeating. It's nonsense. It's absurd. And God sees that our sin is so deep that we want to sin all the time. We're pregnant with evil apart from him. Unrepentant sinners deserve damnation because evil is who we are as sinners to the core of who we are. Apart from grace, we deserve damnation because we're sinners to the core. We're pregnant with evil. And so we pray for judgment of others Based on God's insight, God sees the outside and the inside. He sees how how evil and wicked we are. Even our good works are for self-centered reasons. Unrepentant sinners deserve damnation because their sin and their plans um, bring trouble on their own head. And that's what sinners deserve. Praise God we're saved. So in your suffering, pray for judgment according to God's ways so that you eventually thank God. Pray for judgment according to God's strength, God's God-centeredness, God's ordinances, God's righteousness, God's demand, God's insight, and lastly, according to God's goodness. Pray for judgment according to God's goodness. We look at verse 17. God's righteousness is good and God's name is good. Look at 17. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. Thanking God is for his goodness, ultimately. And what is good here? His righteousness. God upholds the righteous judgment. God is just. God is righteous. God is faithful. God will judge sinners. He will end sin. God has damned our sin, if you're a Christian, a Christian, on the cross. And he's faithful to continue to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 9, because he's just. Because he's righteous, he has to forgive you. He has to cleanse you. He wants to. He has obligated himself in his righteousness to cleanse sinners who are in Christ. God's faithfulness, God's righteousness and his commitment to his righteousness and glory is our foundation that God is faithful, that you can trust him. He will judge the wicked and he will end all evil and he will forgive us of all of our evil and purge us of evil. So our final hope for the removal of evil and the curse 
And our final hope of security, peace, and victory is in the righteousness of God. So we pray thanksgiving. We thank the Lord for his righteousness. His righteousness is good, but so is his name. Look at verse 17. I will sing about the name of Yahweh, most high. God's name is Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who blesses the cursed world through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And so he sings about Yahweh, the God who keeps his covenant, whose name in the new covenant is Jesus. He sings about Yahweh. He sings about God the most high. No one can defeat him. No one can challenge him. God is most high. He's infinitely higher than everyone and everything else. He's more powerful than all. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So we thank God. So to summarize, in your suffering, pray for judgment in a godly way so that you eventually thank God for his goodness. So how do you pray for judgment? Pray for judgment according to God's strength, God's God-centeredness, God's ordinances, God's righteousness, God's demand for repentance, God's insight into our sinfulness, and God's goodness. How is praying for judgment not self-righteous? I mean, it certainly can be, right? You start praying for judgment of others and it's self-righteous. But it's not, it won't be self-righteous when you pray for the judgment of sinners if you pray in the name of the one who was judged on the cross for repenting sinners. Jesus gave his body and the veil was torn. He was, in a sense, torn up by his enemies like a lion. The enemy overtook him and trampled him to the ground and left his honor in the dust. Even worse, God rose up in his anger against Jesus. God took his seat of judgment over Jesus. God sharpened his sword. God strung his bow. He prepared his deadly weapons. He tipped his arrow with fire, and he fired it right into the heart of Jesus, right into the life of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus hangs in darkness, and Jesus becomes the propitiation for our sin. God made him to be sin for us. God exhausted his wrath on Jesus on the cross. He killed Jesus. He damned Jesus on the cross for our sins. Praise God. We can pray for the judgment of others without self-righteousness if we pray in the name of the one who was judged for us, the one who was judged for sinners and damned for sinners. And praise God on the third day, God raised him victoriously from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death. And now we can pray for salvation and judgment because Jesus bore it for us and he calls us to pray for injustice and love. So here's my call to you. Pray for salvation and judgment. Pray for the salvation and judgment of others if they will not repent and trust in Jesus. Pray for your neighbors this way every day this week. We pray for each other that, oh, pray that my, my, my family will be saved, my neighbors will be saved, my loved ones will be saved, this ethnic people group will be saved. Let's pray for their salvation. Yes, pray for that. But if we're gonna let Psalm 7 inform our hearts, then let's pray for salvation and for judgment if they will not repent. If you don't pray for salvation and judgment and you only pray for salvation, you might... Um, grow in anger because you have no release for the anger when you're violated, when God's people are violated. If you don't pray for judgment, you're gonna, that anger can turn into bitterness and resentment. You'll store up anger for yourself, perhaps. It'll become rotten inside of you. You'll be passive toward persecution. Or you'll live with little gospel intentionality toward your neighbors because you pray for their salvation, but you're not praying in light of their judgment. Instead, if you pray for salvation and judgment, this will force you to think through your theology. It will focus you on Christ 
so that you're not praying self-righteously, and you'll start to live with urgent gospel intentionality and hope for your neighbors because you're not just praying for their salvation, you're praying for their judgment if they won't repent. It will grow you in your Christian life and it will help you have the mind of Christ, the mind of Psalm 7. So I plead with you, brothers and sisters, pray for salvation and pray for judgment in your suffering and in the suffering of God's people. Pray for the judgment of God's enemies if they will not repent and be saved.